Thinking Theology has been on a bit of a break for the last year or so. That's because I've moved to a new job teaching at Sydney Missionary and Bible College. But the plan now is to reboot the podcast this year, picking up where we left off, working our way through the essentials of theology. But with the new role comes new opportunities as well, and one of those opportunities is to speak to other theologians, many of whom work here at SNBC. The bread and butter of Thinking Theology will still be 15 to 20-minute episodes looking at key theological topics. But alongside that will be interviews with others that build out some of those topics with a bit more detail. As a bit of a taster of what's to come, here's the first interview I recorded with my colleague Dr. Ian Maddock. Ian's an expert on John Wesley and George Whitfield, two towering figures in the history of evangelical Christianity. But there are also two figures who disagreed over the doctrine of election, that is, whether God chooses people for salvation or whether people choose God of their own free will. That's what I'm talking about with Ian in this latest episode of Thinking Theology. Hi, my name's Carl Dernick. I write about theology and I teach it at Sydney Missionary and Bible College. Welcome to Thinking Theology, a podcast where we think about theology, the Bible, and the Christian life, not just for the sake of it, but so we can love God more with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ian, thanks so much for joining us to talk about Wesley and Whitfield. Before we get started, Ian, people probably don't know much about you, so why don't you just give us a bit of an idea of who you are and what your role at SNBC is? Thanks, Carl. So I've uh, been lecturing here at SNBC for the past 11 years and uh, have been the senior lecturer in Christian thought for all of that time. So it means I have oversight of theology and church history and ethics. Um, yeah, uh, prior to coming to college, I was a pastor in the United States, pastored a Southern Baptist church in New Haven, Connecticut Wow, for a number of years. And am I right in thinking that you also are connected with the Royal Historical Society? <laughs> like well, well, this is true. I don't like to flout this too often, Carl, wow. but uh, since, you, since you brought it up. Yeah. 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 So I was elected a fellow of the Royal Historical Society um, what do you need to do to four get years, that? What, what four do years I ago? need to do? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah see, uh, you, you, need to, you need to produce something, usually a monograph and maybe some other things yeah, that wow. make an original contribution to the genre of history um, and be um, recommended for the society. Someone put my name forward and, yeah, and the rest, the rest is history. So you're a theology guy and you're a history guy. Yes. Of course, the two are yes. not disconnected. Yes. What's led to your interest, though, in particular uh, with Wesley and Whitfield? Yeah, that's a great question. So you know what? Initially, it was a, an essay I wrote during my MDiv here at SNBC back in, I think it was 2000 and, well, I think it was 2004, Giving away um, some things there in age. Yeah, so. age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, it was an essay on uh, Wesley's relationship with Whitfield and especially a sermon that Wesley wrote on uh, free grace, on the doctrine of predestination, which I think we're, we're going to get into a yeah. little bit today. So one thing led to the next and eventually a, a PhD in historical theology looking at their 
uh, their preaching and their theology, their use of the scriptures, and their um, I guess their evolving relationship as yeah, well. Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. And you've also you've done the PhD at that level. You've also written more recently, sort of at a more popular level as mm-hmm. well, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Tell us a little, just a little bit about that. Yeah, as well. so 10, 10 Dead Guys, you should know. It's a book I edited, um, contributed to, and edited with uh, Rachel. Chiano and uh, uh, former principal here at SNBC, Stuart Colton. Uh, so these are sort of bite-sized biographies, um, uh, simple but not simplistic, I guess, oh, wow. in their treatment of a, a series of, um, I think, pr- pretty significant historical characters. Um, about 5,000 words each. That's the sort of thing you can read before yeah. bed. Um, yeah. Uh, hopefully Some not ideas. put you to sleep, but uh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so Rachel and I, we're um, following on from Ten Dead Guys. We've just um, just finished the manuscript for Ten Dead Gals. You wow. should know. So hopefully by the begin, well, beginning of twenty twenty four, end of twenty twenty three, or beginning of twenty twenty four, that should actually manifest itself. Yeah, physically. wow, yeah. fantastic. So if people are interested in a bit more detail on Wesley and Whitfield after our conversation. Maybe that's a place that they can go to. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a chapter on Wesley, um, and Whit- Whitfield makes appearances in, yeah, the, in yeah. the the ten in the dead guys, ten dead guys. Yeah, book. okay, yeah, fantastic. So, uh, in one of the obviously the most famous disputes you've alluded to with Wesley's sermon on free grace, one of the big disputes between Wesley and Whitfield was their disagreement over election mm-hmm. uh, and predestination. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you could just start actually by outlining. What that is, what the what the disagreement was, uh, that is, what's the doctrine of election and predestination, and what the dis- disagreement was, and and how did that come about? Yeah, well, first of all, I guess it's worth noting that that Wesley and Whitfield, they're if we don't know anything about them, they're they're founding fathers of evangelicalism. Hmm. So we we owe a lot to them, uh, not just theologically, but how we think about church. As well, how we do church. Yeah, a lot of their impulses when it came to church, their, their pragmatism, uh, celebrity preacher culture. Yeah, interesting. Their trans-denominationalism, um, all things that we can trace back to, to this period of church history. So we're talking seventeen, late seventeen thirties, yeah, early seventeen forties. This um, the beginnings of this period of transatlantic. Revival, the first great awakening, as it's called, over in the American colonies, the great awakening, as it's called, um, in the British Isles. So these two guys, they're really key, uh, but they're also representing two very different streams within evangelicalism. So uh, Wesley, a sort of uh, a poster boy, an exemplar of Arminianism. Hmm. We'll talk a little more about that, I suspect, yes. as, yeah, yeah. Uh, as this conversation unfolds. But then Whitfield, uh, an exemplar, a poster boy of Calvinism. So um, their differences, um, I, I suppose one way of describing them is these are, uh, um, th- these are family squabbles, uh, though the, the heat with which they battled one another we could very easily get the impression that this is a matter of who is a Christian and yeah. who isn't. I suppose that's one of one of the, the tensions here in this debate. How central is it? Yeah. Um, at various points in their in their discussions, you almost got the point of you could all come away with a conclusion that uh, this was a matter of uh, who is saved and who yeah. isn't. 
Um, at other times, they they softened their stance towards yep. one another. It was a difference that they could that they could plausibly live with. Um, uh, but yeah, th- these are uh, these are uh, uh, really significant figures in the history for, for us as evangelicals, yeah. especially. And there's a lot that they were united on, obviously as well. Yes. Wasn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- they were the leaders of two movements that but that were very similar in so yes. many ways. Yes, yes, and had such a together they had such a big impact, as you said, on the UK mm. and on uh, the US as well. Mm. Mm. But I guess in some ways, sadly, we talk about them often because of these disputes, because it yeah. was a significant dispute as well. Correct, yes. Yeah. yeah. So the, the, the sort of fault lines in the historiography surrounding these two can, yeah. can either accentuate their commonalities yeah. or accentuate their differences. Uh, sort of two peas in a pod or apples and oranges. Yeah, interesting. Um, so really, depending on the criteria that you use to evaluate them, they can come out looking like like either of those two um, uh, models, I guess. Yeah, if you had to lay your, uh, <laughs> you know, put your, raise your colours, uh, what would you say? Two peas in a pod, apples and oranges, or somewhere in between? Well, yes, Carl, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've like, yeah, your questions have been terrific so far, Carl. But that that last one—it's too difficult. Try, trying to trying to pin me down. Yeah, I'm not sure I can do that. So, so Ian, what was at the heart of the the debate then? What what was this debate over? As you said, Arminianism yeah. or Calvinism, yeah. or election and predestination. Yeah. So that this this free grace episode, um, 1739, Wesley preaches a sermon called Free Grace, and it's a it's a passionate critique. Mm of the Calvinist understanding of the doctrine of election. Had he come from a Calvinist background? Wesley? Wesley? No. Okay, no. so he just, he'd just he been exposed to it in the ether and he was yeah. concerned yeah, yeah. about it. Yeah, so that's yeah. What, yeah. What very, very concerned. Uh, so, I mean, humanly speaking, many historians have noted that Wesley could have been nothing other than an Arminian given his family pedigree background, the sort of things that he was exposed to. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is this critique of the idea that God's election is unconditional. Uh, so he just found that to be just um, he had, had a, an an allergic reaction to this teaching, and especially so by, by unconditional election, you mean that God from eternity past has chosen particular people, not on the basis of any merit within themselves, yes. not on the basis of. Foreseen faith, foreseen even. Foreseen faith yep. or anything like that. Yeah. Unconditionally. And, yes. And Wesley just bristled at that idea. Absolutely. For a whole host of reasons, yep. as we'll see. Um, uh, so, so the fallout of this, it wasn't just a doctrinal mm. dispute, had these uh, very personal uh, collateral impacts, and especially on his relationship with Whitfield. Yeah. Uh, so this was, this was a personal fallout. The reason being that... Um, so Wesley was was Whitfield's mentor wow. at Oxford. Yeah, um, you know, and in many ways, Whitfield was uh, was Wesley's protege. So this was kind of a, a very Shakespearean, Carl. Wow. It was sort of a yeah. you know et tu brute yes. moment. Um, so these are not guys throwing grenades over a wall. They're not people who don't know each other, don't understand each other. Yeah. These are these are friends. Yes. they're colleagues. Yes, yes, and the fallout then. Uh, fractures this burgeoning Methodist movement, this reform movement within the Church of England. So from this point onwards, from you know 1739, 1740, 41, you see the Methodist movement fracture. 
mm. along Wesleyan Arminian lines and and Whitfieldian Calvinist lines, and they they really don't join again. That, that fracture is yeah. uh, is is permanent from this point onwards. Um, you, you get the sense at this period that for both of them. Um, the gospel is at stake, right? Yep. So this isn't this isn't a secondary issue. This no. is right at the heart. Correct. Correct. Um, so so from Whitfield's perspective, uh, when he hears Wesley preaching that our election is um, conditional, uh, that the only unconditional thing about election is that God has unconditionally. Um, um, uh, 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 whoever whoever believes will be chosen. That's that's the unconditional thing, yeah. and you enter into the elect category. When when Whitfield hears Wesley saying that, um, he automatically thinks, "Boy, this guy is introducing works." Yes, okay. Into the salvation equation, if it's not entirely unconditional, if salvation is in some sense conditional. Then that conditionality implies merit. Yeah, even if that condition is only faith. Yes, yep. it's still us having the final say, and Whitfield just bristled at that. Yep. So that was his fear. Now, for his part, Wesley's um, his issue was that um, uh, Calvinists seem to be downplaying the importance of holiness. Right. In the Christian life, activity, uh, response to God's grace. Um, that that uh, uh, that the Calvinist system was just way, way too passive for Wesley, um, and, and that's yeah one of the main reasons that he bristled against uh, unconditional election. Though there are a few other reasons that I so that I guess we'll get to. What's the connection in his mind in, in Wesley's mind between? faith and the style of the Christian life. Mm. So he's concerned that the Calvinist life is too, there's not a desire for holiness. Yeah. What's the connection between that and faith? Is it that the faith isn't being worked out in practice? Is that his concern, do you think? Yeah, or that it'll be worked out in um, licentiousness, so loose loose living, because godless living. I belong living. to God, I exactly. don't need to worry. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. If yep. I've been elected from okay. before the beginning of time, yep. what I can do whatever I want. Yeah. A bit like this, the similar objection which is often made against Calvinism is it leads to a neglect of mission, for yes. example, yes. because if yes. people are going to be saved, we don't do a Yes, yes, yes. So the yeah, a separation of responsibility and, right. and sovereignty kind of thing. So this is what it's, yeah, the, this is the... Um, d- differing differing ways of parsing that relationship yeah. between God's sovereignty yep. and human responsibility, yep. and it's the, the the flashpoint where it becomes most immediately apparent these differences. Uh, it, it's around this doctrine yeah. of predestination, though not not exclusively so. Um, you know, they had they had differences over justification, yeah. differences over the extent of sanctification as well. So Christian perfection, yeah. Was a big thing, and did that 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 sounds like those ideas are tied in Wesley's mind potentially that because Calvinism led in his mind led to a lack of a desire for holiness. Yes, there's a kind of seems to be a bit of a connection between that and the idea of Christian perfectionism and for sure this hope of 
entire sanctification in yes. his life? Yeah, so here's the thing. So he never spoke about entire sanctification. He didn't use that language. No, no, he was actually quite or sinless perfection, very reluctant to use that language um, uh, for, for a host of reasons. I mean, I, I guess what, one of the one of the main reasons for him was that um, uh, he, he defined he defines sin. This is Wesley we're talking about. He defines sin as a voluntary transgression of a known law. Right. In order to make perfection, Christian perfection, love of God, love of neighbor, attainable in this life. Yeah. Right. And his uh, his fear was. That if you don't hold out the possibility of perfection, mm. as he parses it, then Christians will lose. They'll lose hope. Yeah. They'll lose energy for the for the struggle. So as far as as far as Wesley is concerned, um, when a when a Calvinist starts talking about indwelling sin as being our lifelong unwelcome companion. Uh, that uh, can't help but have a suppressing influence. So I may as well give up. It's yes. going to be there all the time. So yes, what's yes, the yes, point? yes. Yeah. Um, instead, uh, there seem to be these these promises or these commands that imply a promise of possibility. Uh, so uh, Matthew five forty eight: Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah. So Wesley would read this and say. God wouldn't taunt us, tempt yeah. us, mock us with those sorts of commands if it weren't an actual possibility. Yeah, interesting. So it's the doctrinal, perfection is the doctrinal carrot for him interesting. in the Christian life. Yeah. Um, it's why he preached it so tenaciously, even though it was so often misunderstood yeah. as a sinless perfection. Interesting. Um, and so the... The, the opposite side of that coin is unconditional election, yeah. um, a disincentive to the pursuit of holiness. Um, in, in Wesley's mind. In Wesley's mind. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That, that's, that's right. Um, um, so I think this hermeneutic of holiness hmm. is just really important to understand if we're going to appreciate Wesley on his own terms. Interesting. So everything, every doctrine is filtered through, is this a, an incentive or is this a disincentive to holiness? That's his theological grid, if yeah. you will. So he, he, he's really reluctant to define Methodism in doctrinal terms, but when he's pushed, he uses the analogy of a, of a house. So... The, the porch of the house yep. is repentance. Yep. Uh, the door of the house is faith, so justifying faith. But then the inside of the house, the core of biblical Christianity as far as Wesley is concerned, it's holiness. Yeah. So sanctification becomes the the epicenter of his theological system. Yeah. Which is quite different, I think, to the way in which Whitfield is operating. Um, other Others in a more um, reformed system. Yeah. Th that would be fair to say that Whitfield cared deeply about holiness. Absolutely. Too, they, they both 
at Ab- Oxford absolutely, were, yes. were just yes. sold out, yes. weren't they, really, yes. in terms of pursuing holiness? Yes, yes, yes. And uh, yeah, uh, that's a good point, Carl. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why in his um, sort of frequent lifelong um, uh, crusade against Calvinism, uh, Wesley is um, uh, oftentimes very reluctant to lump Whitfield in with, with other yeah. nefarious Calvinists yes. that he spends his life battling. Yeah, because um, in practice, he didn't see what he was accusing exactly. Calvinists of in yeah, the life of Whitfield. Absolutely, yeah, That's yeah, so yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's almost like his, the, the strength of their relationship, the yeah. bonds that they had formed at Oxford, um, they were too strong to yes. too strong even for Wesley to, to wow. lump him in with other Calvinists. So. Wesley's preached this uh, free grace sermon yes. and obviously he comes, he, he launches other attacks as well, yes. saying similar kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. You've mentioned uh, that it's this desire for holiness that was one of his arguments. Were there other arguments that Wesley had that really drove or, or that he kept uh, rolling out, I guess, as he sought to counter yeah. Yeah, yeah. Calvinism? Yeah. So Wesley preaches the sermon. There's a bit of a silence. Whitfield responds. And then that the peace is uh, is broken at that point. Yeah. They were trying to keep this dispute out of the public eye, but eventually it became too much. So I guess that that what, what was the what was the gist of their of the arguments that Wesley was was uh, using? So he when he uses this phrase "free grace," uh, by that he means well he 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 passed it. God's grace is free in all, and it's free for all. And what he means by that is that the extent of the atonement is unlimited. Yep. So there's the free for all. Okay, yep. But then it's also free in all. And by that, he means the idea of prevenient grace. So this is the idea that um, uh, all of us are totally fallen, dead in our sins and transgressions. But in his kindness, God has given every person, without exception, this little bit of grace, which Wesley styles prevenient grace, which enables us to say yes or no to the gospel. Yeah. So what he's doing there, it's this ingenious move. Whether or not it has exegetical <laughs> basis is another thing. Yeah, yeah. But what he's trying to do, he's trying to hold on to a, a, a reformed doctrine of total depravity on the one hand. So he's not wanting to be uh, be confused with a semi-Pelagian, yes. Carl. That, that this, is the, this is a big thing for him because he knows that Calvinists are going to misunderstand him. Yeah. And Whitfield misunderstands him. He's going to misunderstand him uh, for saying that we contribute something to our salvation, yeah. that and we're semi- only partially fallen. That's right. So se- semi-Pelagianism is that idea, I mean, I guess particularly typified isn't it, in Catholicism where – uh, there's, there's, uh, it's faith, but there's also, and, and the work of God, but there's, yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a co-contribution, yes. if you like, yes. a scheme. God does a bit, and I, and I yes. do a bit. Yes. And Wesley was was against that. Yes. He's a classical Arminian. Yep. Following in Arminius' footsteps, so Arminius, yep. early seventeenth uh, uh, century Dutch theologian, who was sort of first advancing these these yep. ideas. Um, uh, uh, so, so for, from Wesley's perspective, this is this is a thoroughly evangelical option because it is by grace alone. Um, but what he's wanting to say is there is an, from his experience, and as he looks at the scriptures, there is an element of synergism. Uh, backwards and forwards, we aren't sort of coerced 
as he as he thinks about his own Christian life, we're not being sort of dragged by the scruff of the neck into salvation. There's there's genuine choice. How do you account for that genuine choice while at the same time um, saying that salvation is by grace alone? Yes. So prevenient grace is his solution, his ingenious theological solution to this conundrum. It's how he holds divine sovereignty and human responsibility together. Uh, uh, now, now, as far as Whitfield is concerned, when he talks about free grace, because he's also talking about free grace. In fact, he was talking about free grace before Wesley was. Yes, In fact, yep. uh, historically, you look at Wesley's choice of title for his sermon, and it's almost like Wesley's trying to reclaim sort of theological copyright over this term. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Whitfield, Calvinist Whitfield, you're not going to have a monopoly on yeah. this term. I'm going to grab this term and see if I can, can angle it, it into ourselves. it. Yeah, keep yeah. it for ourselves. So when Whitfield talks about free grace, by contrast, as a Calvinist, he's talking about God's freedom to withhold or to give grace. The emphasis is very much on God, his freedom. When it comes to our responsibility, um, he certainly teaching that and believes that. Uh, we're not puppets on a string as far as Whitfield's concerned, but there is an element of, of mystery that he is happy to sit with when it comes to how it is that our genuine responsibility um, relates to God's sovereignty. Uh, so his view of salvation is much more straightforwardly monogistic, if we can put it in those terms. So God, yes, doing it, yes, that's his focus on his own. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yep. So we're wandering off topic here, Ian, as you suggested that we might, but let's go with it anyway. So one of the people, of course, engaged as well in the uh, Great Awakening and the Evangelical Revival was Jonathan Edwards, mm. who himself was also a Calvinist, Yes, he had a much more strongly developed sense, I suppose, of the relationship between God's work and human work. Mm. Is it fair to say that Whitfield didn't share that kind of, uh, the, the kind of the robustness maybe that Jonathan Edwards was able to bring to, to the relationship between God's work and human work? Uh, well, I, I suppose, I mean, I mean, Edwards was... Um Theologically, they are they are uh, they are closely associated. Even if Edwards is spending far more time developing the the philosophical and theological yeah. intricacies of that relationship, um, Whitfield, uh, a happy compatibilist, Carl, I think is the way to okay. describe him. There's there's a compatibilism between God's exhaustive sovereignty and our genuine human responsibility. Yeah. So we just can't explain it. Yeah, we can't be. explain it. Yeah. So, uh, and just to tease it out, so Wesley said there was a synergism too. In in a mm, way, yes. Whitfield is saying something yes. similar. Well, yes. Not synergism. He's, there's a compatibilism. Yes. It's a slightly different idea, isn't it? That yeah. there's a, uh, you know, God's work is primary sovereign, but that doesn't override human uh, action in the sense of it doesn't uh, rub out our 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 choices or anything like that, yes. but our choices somehow fit within God's sovereignty yes. and and so on. Yes. So there is a relationship still. Absolutely, the they're both trying to find some way of explaining in a way that's faithful to Scripture. Uh, how do we account for 
uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, upholding God's exhaustive sovereignty, while at the, at the same time accounting for uh, um, both experientially and in the pages of Scripture, genuine human responses. That's right, yeah. And meaningful choice. Meaningful choice, yeah. Yeah, meaningful responsibility. And so Wesley feels that there is just no scope for that, no space for that, with any sort of intellectual credibility within the Calvinist system. Interesting. Do you think he fully understood the Calvinist system as he brought that critique? Do you think do you, do you think he understood would have understood, for example, some of the sophisticated philosophical arguments that, say, Jonathan Edwards would have been bringing to the table in the US? Mm. Or was that, that 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 strikes me? That's not really the the kind of person that Wesley was. He was an evangelist at heart, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's a very very clever man, uh, very widely read. He read Edwards was highly influenced by Edwards' account narrative of the revival that broke out in Northampton in winter of 34 1734 um early 1735 so he was he was familiar with edwards um but really uh, at the end of the day he he thought any attempt by a calvinist to I- explain away um uh, or, or, uh, their appeals to mystery didn't satisfy yes, wesley okay. at the end of the day so I, th- I think that raises interesting questions regarding the role of theological authority you know, expand on that. What do you yeah, mean by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, on the one hand, both Wesley, Whitfield, Edwards, too, for that matter, um, aspiring to be sola scriptura people, men of one book, as uh, uh, as Wesley himself put it. Um, and yet, the the reality is, there are these other sources of theological authority that are contributing to our um, the way we think and live as Christians. So. Um, uh, Wesley would elsewhere appeal to the role of experience and tradition and reason. Uh, now, if you were to ask him, do those other sources of authority trump scripture? You know, he'd say no. Yes. Um, as Whitfield would, as yes. Edwards would, and yet in in practice, um, his appeals to prevenient grace, for example. Um, to my, to my mind, I'm perhaps laying my cards out here at this point, Carl, against my better That's judgment. That's not like you, um, No, it isn't. No, no, I'm succumbing. You've broken me down. So um, uh, the role of reason is maybe exercising a, a higher degree of authority than maybe it does for Whitfield at this point. So for Whitfield, he's quite happy to live with divine sovereignty and human responsibility existing in tension yeah. in a way that sort of almost transcends the capacity for his reason to reconcile them. So, I mean, you mentioned experience as well. You've said that reason was a was a mm. high value for Wesley, or maybe it's better to say a particular kind of mm. understanding of reason, that is that mm. we can explain everything, that every issue that we yep. face, whereas yep. Whitfield was happy to live with mystery. It seems to me, I'm not a Wesley scholar like you are, Ian, but it seems to me that Wesley also placed a fairly high importance on experience as well. Yes. It seems he was particularly influenced by his own experience of conversion yes. as well and that kind of thing. Yep. Do, do you think that was part of the equation as well? Undoubtedly, though, it, it, uh, experience also played a significant role in Whitfield's life as well. How, how I, so? I think. Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, uh, he, he, was, he was very quick to... Um, appeal to 
responses to his preaching as a validation of their hmm. uh, of God's blessing in a way that um, paradoxically Wesley was a little more ambivalent about some of the dramatic outpourings of yeah. uh, emotional responses yep. to his preaching. Um, so Wesley was um, uh, all sorts of dramatic things would often go on at their preaching events. Um, uh, Wesley reflecting on this, you know, this this might be the work of the spirit. Uh, it might be the work of the devil. It might just be that people got a wee bit too excited <laughs> and started copying one another. Yeah, um, these sort of you know um, psychosomatic responses. Yeah, um, we'd feel far less um, you know, ambivalent. The, these these positive um, that the, the um, people's dramatic outpourings were. Um, Indisputable evidence yep. of God's blessing yep. on His ministry, as far as He's concerned. So, yeah, um, yeah. I, mean, I, I think experience played a, a key role for yeah. both of them, and that the the the, um, uh, the experience of the new birth for both of them being a really key thing. So, this is the kind of the, the Pietistic influence yes. on them. It's not just a sort of a Puritan Reformed influence on yeah. both of them. There's this. Um, Pietistic influence as well. That the the the, um, the importance of having felt, uh, experienced the new birth, Carl was such a, a crucial thing for them. It wasn't enough just to know the truth. You yes. needed to have felt the truth as well, almost as a, a spiritual sixth sense. Yeah, which which I think comes from their context, doesn't it? Where they were they they were both. Church of England men, mm. they were both speaking into that context where there were people who were in the church, mm. but, mm. you know, probably not really genuine Christians. Mm. And so they had this mm. emphasis, didn't they, on the new birth? On the new birth. This, this experience of genuine yeah. Christianity, yeah. Uh, a spiritual awakening, yes. uh, that kind of thing. Yes. Now, Carl, you asked me a you asked me a question earlier, and I didn't I didn't answer it, which oh. was uh, which was quite unhelpful, wasn't it? You asked me what what was some I didn't of the, even notice what were some of the what were some of the questions that object specific objections. That's right. That Wesley was raising. Yes. So have a few. Should okay. I share them? Yeah, go for your life. Okay. So one of his main objections was why bother preaching if Calvinism is true, if the election is unconditional, why bother preaching? Why is Whitfield bothering to preach? Um, if if uh, salvation is a done deal from before the beginning of time, who is saved, who isn't saved? Then all of this human activity is a waste uh, of time, it's a waste or, of time. or unnecessary. Unnecessary. Yep. God will do yep. it anyway. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So there's his first objection. Um, his second second objection we've we've spoken about a little is is why bother pursuing holiness. Then the, the third objections, the third sort of cluster of objections, is that as far as Wesley's concerned, the God of Calvinism is making fake offers of salvation. You read in Scripture of God's desire that everyone be saved, that none perish, but everyone come to repentance. Yeah. Second Peter. Uh, as far as Wesley couldn't reconcile these universal offers with the sort of God that Calvinists appeared to be presenting, a God who is quite selective, elective in his love, and not all have been elected. So something doesn't square there as far as, uh, as, far as Wesley's concerned. He's also concerned that Calvinism is is making God the author of unbelief. In what way? Um, so if God is 
equally, mm. if, if God is um, uh, praiseworthy for our belief, then Calvinist, you need to own the flip side of that. Yeah, right. Yeah. That he is blameworthy for our unbelief yep. as well. So if it's God who brings people to faith, then it's also really, isn't it, yep. Wesley saying God who makes people not believe. Or yes, 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 yes. And if I, and if I, Cressley. Yes, and if, I, and if I don't believe, then it's not my fault, it's God's fault for not electing me. Uh, that, that's, his, that's his concern. Now, now, Whitfield responds. So, so what does Whitfield say to those, to those responses? Yeah, those yeah, good question. Yep, yep. So, he, I mean, he has, he has um, I think, quite cogent responses to each of, each of these objections. So when it comes to the preaching question, um, his line of argument is that God uses secondary means, preaching, for example, evangelism, as a way of accomplishing his ultimate ends that he has decreed from before the beginning of time. So preaching is not at odds with unconditional election. It's his means of bringing his elect to himself. And so that gave Whitfield great comfort, Carl. In what way? Um, uh, so, so rather than Whitfield preaching, thinking that it was up to him, his persuasiveness yeah. to bring people into the kingdom... Yes, he was going to use all of the powers of his um, uh, of persuasion at his disposal, uh, and he was a uh, he was undoubtedly just a very dramatic preacher. Um, but at the end of the day, his comfort was that God has his elect, and no matter how good or bad a job he does preaching, God will invariably bring his elect to Himself. So that was a great comfort. Yeah. To him. Um, uh, there was that that security, that that comfort yep. for him um, as he preached. There's a sense in which isn't isn't it that what Wesley, sorry, what Whitfield is doing is distinguishing causes, primary causes and yes. secondary causes. Correct. So yes. you know, how does my car get from here to Sydney? Yes. I drive it. Yes. Uh, the steering wheel <laughs> turns yes. the wheels. Yes. The petrol makes the engine go. Yes. So all of those are explanations. Yes. With, with various levels of uh, explanatory power. Yes, uh, they don't necessarily. Not all of those causes are the ultimate cause. Mm. Is, is that that's sort of that's what, right? That's right. What Whitfield's yeah, yeah, yeah. doing, yeah. isn't he? Saying yeah. there's an ultimate cause that's God. Yes, but God is using secondary causes to bring as his means. Yes, to bring those about. Yeah, that, that's right. When it, when it comes to the question of is God blameworthy for our unbelief, Calvinist own the full implications of your belief in uh, God's praiseworthiness when it comes to election to salvation. Um, Whitfield's seeing more of a, an asymmetrical relationship between these. And I think that's a reasonable thing. When you look at the, the relationship between Romans 9 and 10, for example. So Romans 9 being uh, primarily about God's unconditional election. Uh, and God is praiseworthy there. But when it, when it comes to Romans 10, the emphasis there is on Israel's yeah, interesting. unbelief yep. predominantly. Um, if theological symmetry was the order of the day when it comes to Paul's explanation for Israel's unbelief, then you would think, as per Wesley, that the blame would be also residing with God. But that's not where Paul goes. No. When it comes to culpability... 
blameworthiness for Israel's unbelief. It's it's Israel yes. that are on the hook. Um, there's no sense of them being able to turn around to God and say, uh, I can't believe or I refuse to believe because you didn't choose me. That's right. Yeah. So there's an asymmetry there. And I suppose in a sense, isn't it, the, as- the, the assumption of symmetry is exactly that. Mm. It's, a, it's an assumption. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think this is what Carson does so well in his, his dealing with divine sovereignty and human responsibility is that he surveys the biblical data and says, it's it's not symmetrical, mm. and we just have to hold what the scriptures yes. puts before us. Right? Yes. It's kind of a it's a very helpful. We have to be careful of making what appear to be rational or reasonable reasonable uh, d- deriving what appear reasonable conclusions yes. that aren't actually supported yes. by the yes. the textual evidence. I suppose. Yes, this is one of the, another one of these instances I think where where Wesley's commitment to reason trumps what's actually in front of him. In Romans nine and ten, so did Whitfield have any other responses to Wesley's arguments? Yeah, yeah. So maybe one one other. So when it comes to the question of uh, is God playing games with humanity, when you know you 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 see these universal offers of salvation, um, and yet not everyone is elected, how how does Whitfield um, integrate these, reconcile these? Well. Uh, what, he, what he's generally doing is he's seeing a distinction between God's will of decree and his will of precept. Whoa. So do you want me to, do you want me to talk about those? <laughs> talk about those. Yeah, just, so really briefly. So, so will, of, will of precept is the idea that God has, he, he desires everyone to come to repentance, for, yeah. for none to perish. Um, uh, that, that will is known to us because God's revealed it in his word. When it comes to the will of decree, who he's chosen to save and who he hasn't cho- uh, chosen to save, um, we're not privy to that. Uh, this is his secret, hidden will. But when Whitfield reads the scriptures, he also sees evidence of this will of God as well, that some have been chosen yeah. and some have been passed by. And so, what he what, uh, again, he's happy to live with a level of mystery there. One of those wills has been known to us, and it's our delight and our privilege to prosecute that will with as much gusto as we can muster. And there's a similarity there between that idea. I mean, sometimes we might hear an idea like that and go, oh, that seems a bit a bit weird that God has two wills. But we see something similar, don't we, even in just something like the law, that God desires mm all people to love him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, but that's not the world that we see. And Mm. so we're wrestling at that level as well, aren't we, between what God has expressed his will to be and what actually is the world that we find, that there is some reason, some will that God has that we don't quite understand for why the world is not how he desires it to or how he's expressed he desires it to be at this particular point in time. Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah, yeah. So, Ian, gosh, we've gone over a lot of uh, a lot of ground. Mm-hmm. Let's move to thinking finally about what we can learn from this dispute. Mm. Uh, I guess, yeah. What can, well, what can we learn? Mm. Um, so, I think on the one hand, it's refreshing to remember that these uh, these disputes, these differences, um, Wesley Whitfield, they weren't the first 
to engage in these debates. In, in one sense, this is just a, an 18th century flashpoint of a debate that has been going on throughout the history of the church. Uh, so you know, Augustine and Pelagius, Luther and Erasmus, Wesley Whitfield. Um, I think that's comforting, isn't it, for us as we wrestle with this relationship between yeah. God's sovereignty and human responsibility? Um, that we're, this, this is... Um, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Yes, theologically. Um, so it's in a sense we are uh, we are following in well trodden trails when it comes to these debates. I think that's one thing. Um, I think another thing is that uh, I think we learned that all doctrine is interrelated. What do you mean by that? Um, uh, so one's doctrine of predestination doesn't exist in a in a vacuum. So it's almost the, the tip of the tip of a theological iceberg for Wesley and Whitfield. Yeah, right. uh, it emerges out of um, different understandings of God's sovereignty and sin, um, uh, you know, the, the, the manifestation of sin, um, uh, our, our theological authority. Um, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Yep. Predestination doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, uh, and so these differences manifest themselves in different different ways as well. So we've looked at the perfection issue. Justification was another area where their differences, their Calvinist yeah, right. and Arminian differences manifested themselves. Yep. So um, have we got time? Just re- re- yeah, really, go re- for your yeah, life. Really, yeah, like really briefly. Um, uh, so when, when Whitfield talks about justification, uh, what he means by that is that God has declared us not guilty, forgiven us uh, all of our sin, not just not just past sin and present sin, but also future sin as well. So yep. all of our sins have been covered. Uh, and not only that, but that God has imputed an alien righteousness. So Jesus' obedience is, yes. is reckoned to be ours. Yes, we'll yep. be clothed in his righteousness. Yep. 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 It's not enough for us just to have our slate wiped clean. That's no good. We need a righteousness that's not of our own. Now, Wesley, using that same terminology of justification, meaning something subtly different, Carl. So um, uh, uh, it, it's only our past sin that has been forgiven, not our future sin. He's very careful to quarantine off future sin as having been forgiven. Does this in a number of different places, and I'm I'm assuming again this is because of his concern about holiness. Absolutely, because if I'm forgiven for the future, then I can sin yeah, with abandon. Absolutely, that's so interesting. Um, and he's also super reluctant to use the language of imputation hmm. again, because if we start thinking that either, um, uh, well. Adam's sin has been imputed to me, then that's um, removing my own culpability, lessening my own culpability. Or if Jesus' righteousness is imputed to me, again, that's doing away with the necessity of pursuing holiness. Interesting. Um, now, uh, 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 Wesley's um, issues with Calvinists and justification, um, that wasn't something that Wesley and Whitfield tussled over. But Wesley certainly had running battles in the 1750s and beyond with with other Calvinists like uh, James Harvey, for example, yeah. Augustus Toplady. Yeah, right. Yeah, the famous 
him writing. Yeah. 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 When 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 Top Lady wasn't writing Rock of Ages and giving <laughs> us great great verses to sing, he was engaged in pitched theological battles. It just and that's so, that's so interesting about the justification thing and the implications of the traditional, or what you would probably call a traditional reformed, mm, mm, mm. Uh, that is from the era of the Reformation yes. um, doctrine of justification, the implications he felt that had for holiness. That's so interesting because, again, that shows him following the lines of his own reasoning. Yes. If I can risk criticising Wesley here, at the expense of maybe asking the question, well, what is it the scriptures are actually saying about mm. these particular things? He's yeah. saying, no, if I hold that, it'll lead to this rather than, well, what is actually, how does the Bible hold these two things together? Does, yeah. it, does it assume that that logical relationship or what I think is a logical relationship, does, does the Bible agree with, mm. with my assessment, mm. I guess? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's so interesting. Mm. What can we learn in about theological disputes and disagreeing well? It's mm, a great question. So I think undoubtedly when you look at Wesley and Whitfield, there were there are genuine theological disagreements. It isn't just a matter of semantics yeah. at the end of the day. And yet, here's the thing, I think those genuine theological disagreements were exacerbated by terminological misunderstandings. And I think to some extent they were um, perhaps um, uh, um, uh, uh, genuine misunderstandings. Sometimes uh, they were willful as well. Deliberately misunderstanding the other person. Yes, I think so. I think there's an element of both. For sure. Which, Uh, Which... I mean, I guess we only have to look inside our own hearts and experience to to mm. recognise the truth of that, don't mm. we? That sometimes we disagree with the people with all the best intentions, and other times we mm. we play dirty tricks to yes. to win our win yes. our case. Yes, you know. So so in in, in Wesley's case, um, you know, I, I think a lot of his critiques of Calvinism are better classified as critiques of hyper Calvinism. Um. Because I, you know, I, I think uh, uh, you know, straightforwardly, um, many of the Calvinists that he was engaging with were, were not denying the importance of living a holy life in response to a, a, a gratitude-filled response to God's grace. Yeah, uh, they were active in evangelism and preaching, um, uh, so which we saw earlier. I mean, you yeah, mentioned that yeah. earlier, didn't you? That he could never quite reconcile yeah. what he was saying about Calvinists yeah. with what he knew of right. Whitfield. Right. Right. Um, so there's that misunderstanding, and I think uh, misunderstanding works the other way as well. So I think in in, in many ways, um, Whitfield uh, um, knowingly or unknowingly, um, uh, when he accuses Wesley of making salvation depend not on God's free grace, but on man's free will. That's an accusation that, 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 that he's characterizing semi-Pelagianism yeah. at that point, not classical Arminianism. That uh, that Wesley, the position that Wesley is holding. Um, so again, how much of that is a, a willful misunderstanding? How much of it's just um, an accident? Difficult to parse, but I think it is a lesson for us that um, uh, uh, as we engage with folks from 
positions, theological positions, traditions that are different from our own. We're, we're, uh, it's our responsibility to do so with empathy hmm. and to be able to describe them in a way that they would um, they'd say, you know what, you, you've accurately described my position. Yeah, for Even sure. if you end up disagreeing with me. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose there are times when people, the disagreement is over something that strikes at the core of the gospel. Mm. For example, mm. salvation through Christ alone. Yes. Uh, through faith alone. But there are times, and I'm not sure if you agree with me on this, but uh, but I, I think this is one of those cases where I do think the doctrine of election and predestination and God's sovereignty are important, mm. but mm. it's a mischaracterization, I think, to say that it is of the nature of salvation. Yes. That that Whitfield uh, or both of their characterizations that this is at the heart of, of yes. the gospel was a mistake. Yeah. That they've elevated something which is what you might say is for the well-being of the church mm. to be something which is absolutely essential mm. for salvation. Do you think that's I think that's true. And yet the I think the reason why they were both prompted to view this as a almost a salvation issue I'm going to break fellowship with you. This is a mutual feeling, was because of its gospel-centric implications, as we've as we've alluded to. For Whitfield, his suspicion that this was, you know, Arminians are inevitably introducing works. Yes, conditionality there, and therefore works. You know, and for Wesley, because holiness was just so key for him. Yeah. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it's the center of the house for him, inside of the house. That's the reason why you repent and get justified so that you can live a holy life. Yeah. For Calvinists, they're they're disincentivizing. Their system is disincentivizing that pursuit. And so for him, this was striking at the very core of his Christian identity and therefore prompt, you know, prompting the really visceral response. Yeah. On his part. yeah. And yet it's so interesting, isn't it, because they still viewed each other as, as genuine believers, didn't they? Yes. I mean, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That, that famous, yeah. I, I, brothers, maybe, but yeah. That, yeah. That's right. Uh, I, I, there's a famous quote. I think it is. Someone asked Whitfield, "You know, do you think you'll see Wesley in the new creation?" And, yeah. And uh, and Whitfield said, "Oh no, he'll be much too close to the throne of God." Or words to that effect. And you know that you know there's there's a there's a, an, an alternative version of that story. Oh really? Carl, that has the characters reversed. Oh really? Isn't that wonderful? Which one is true? Well, Do I we think know? both. I think both are true. I think both both existed. Both are out there in yeah. the in the records. So, um, so yes. Yeah, so on the one hand, you know Wesley Whitfield offering sort of rich vistas of uh, evangelical ecumenism, on the one hand, and yet this sort of um, um, sort of Wesley versus Whitfield. Yeah. Um, element of the historiography as well. Yeah. Um, and you know what, Carl? Though for all of their disagreements, the, the lovely thing is that uh, Whitfield, uh, n- knowing that the end was coming relatively soon for him, had lined Wesley up to preach at his memorial service wow. in London. So Whitfield dies 1770 over in uh, the colonies uh, in Massachusetts, Newburyport, Massachusetts. And much to... Um, uh, well, much to Augustus Toplady's displeasure uh, and various other Calvinists, it was the Arminian John Wesley who had the honour of preaching at, at Whitfield's yeah. funeral, his uh, his memorial service back 
back in London when news eventually filtered through. You know, six weeks later, it took a long time for ships to get from one side of the Atlantic to the other. So it took a little while for that news to filter through that Whitfield had died. But wow. it was it was Wesley, his, wow. his enemy. After all those disputes. Yes, his wow. enemy, his, his frenemy in the end. His who, frenemy uh, in the end. Who, who got the honour of preaching his sermon. I, I just think that's lovely. Yeah, that's beautiful, isn't it? Uh, it's... It's a, there's no doubt it's a it's a sad tale of disagreement in many ways, but it's also as you said it's it, there is also warmth I think and and hope mm. for uh, even in, in fierce disagreements uh, love and understanding mm. and and Christian warmth mm. in the gospel. Mm. Mm. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome, Carl. And uh, well, anyone can go and check out uh, Ten Dead Guys and perhaps sometime soon Ten Dead Gals. Excellent. Thanks, Thanks Carl. Bye. Yep.